0: Welcome back to A Sort of Young Person's Guide to prog Rock. I am your host, Ian Price. So today we are in the psychedelic haze of 1967 London where the moody blues and orchestrator Peter Knight would create rock's first great concept album. Pretty much by accident. Today we'll be exploring 1967's Days of Future Past. So, we go back in time to 1964 with the Moody Blues, which at this point included bassist John Lodge, drummer Graham Edge, and flout player Ray Thomas. The Moody Blues were a British beat band fresh off their hit single Go Now, but in 1965 their debut album, The Magnificent Moody's, landed with a thud. So, coming into 1967, they were broke and lost, but their record company cooked up a scheme for them to record Dvorak's New World Symphony with an orchestra. This was to promote the record company's new stereo recording technology. To this end, they gave them cheap overnight studio time to come up with a simple album. New keyboardist Mike Pinder and new guitarist Justin Hayward brought in Dawn is a Feeling and Nights in White Satin, respectively, bookending a song cycle about the day so the moody's quickly wrote and recorded eight songs and then left gaps in the tape which were then filled in by orchestrator peter knight with symphonic segues the effect was an almost continuous flow of music and almost by chance the moody's had created a blend of orchestral music poetry and the hint of a theme into a simple yet effective concept album so at this point it probably makes sense to touch on what a concept album actually is uh, ironically, it's a pretty flimsy concept. But for a lot of musical history, composers would come up with narrative stories and combine them with music, l- like an opera. But in the mid-1800s, so-called tone poems or program pieces emerged, like Holt's Planet Suite, Prokhov's Peter and the Wolf, or The Carnival of the Animals by saint which would attempt to evoke concepts or stories using music. Coming into the recorded era, albums were literally like that like a photo album full of single records. As we go along, artists could put about 45 minutes over two sides of an LP, thus stringing together songs. So the concept of albums as a bunch of catchy songs persisted, but in 1940, Woody Guthrie strung together the Dust Bowl ballads, which were songs all about economic hardship in America during the Dust Bowl. And in 1958, Frank Sinatra recorded In the Wee Small Hours, a collection of of blue heartbreak songs. And then the Beach Boys came along and recorded about eight albums full of songs about surfing and cars. Thus, the concept album as we know it, an album that hangs together thematically or musically in a sum greater than its parts, was born. Sgt. Pepper's gets a lot of credit as a concept album in the sense that Paul envisioned a fake band and fake performances, but song to song, it's pretty musically eclectic. However, the Moody Blues strung together songs about the day in order so i would argue this is definitely greater than the sum of its parts and many other bands who will probably touch on will attempt to pick themes and explore them using concept albums the final development would come in 1969 with the who's tommy probably the first rock opera a narrative story told with rock music but that's a different story for a different podcast so this album comes courtesy of my mom She noticed I had been diving deep into the world of the 1960s and 70s rock and said, if you're going to do that, you got to get on board with the Moody Blues. And she was absolutely right, and this album went on to instant rotation. Funnily enough, this album is so smooth, I know almost every minute of it, but I hadn't even thought about it deeply until this podcast. So just for you guys, I've done some deep thinking. And without further ado, I'm joined by my guests today... The one and only Rufus Da.
1: How's it going?
0: (laughs) And the legend himself, Ed Thomas. (laughs) Hello. So, we'll start with Rufus. Rufus, you've never really heard this album. You've probably never heard much of the Moody Blues. How did you feel about this?
2: Yeah, I thought it was really, really good. Um, The perspective I came from was one of current music, so you could see how people had taken quite a lot of the motifs and interesting things that they decided to do throughout the album and expanded upon that in, in later music. So obviously, I'm coming from that viewpoint. But generally, I thought it was a fantastic album. It was really, really fun to listen to. And I'm a sucker for a bit of orchestral strings. So <laughs> yep. It was excellent, really. It
0: makes it go down real smooth. So, sure. Ed, you're a little bit of a moody blues listener, maybe enthusiast, tell me about where you come from with this album.
1: So yeah, for me, you know, it's the, the Moody Blues, I think the kind of rhythm and blues side of it all, and it just invokes so many, so many memories of different things that come later on, and it's just, it's just not a Moody Blues album, but it's also got some of their, you know, most famous you know nice and white Saturn, huge huge song yeah it's great it's great it, it my favorite prog rock album ever <laughs> it's not this but um it's war of the worlds by jeff wayne i've spoken to you about this before <laughs> um and instantly this record puts me in mind of that
0: so for those of us who don't know what is War of the Worlds, the album?
1: So, I will always find a way of talking about War of the Worlds, because it's my favourite concept album. <laughs> okay, so, War of the Worlds happened because Jeff Wayne, who was kind of getting bored of the songwriting process, wanted a concept to to play with. Um, and he looked at a lot of sci-fi stuff from the, the turn of the last century, and it, the The idea of H.G. Wells War of the World just appealed, and um, he created this utter masterpiece, in my opinion, of of storytelling through music. Um, it takes you on an on an incredible journey. It uses it uses really exciting instrumentation. There's there's loads of great synth sounds on there, mixed in with incredible rock guitar and and orchestral pieces. You've got um, Richard Burton is the voice of the journalist who's telling you the story. One Justin Hayward, yeah. So Justin Hayward was chosen to perform the song "Forever Autumn," and I think in Jeff Wayne's words, it's I want the guy who did "Night in White Satin," and again, it's it's his clarity of his singing voice, which is it is so striking. You know, it's powerful yet clear and every word is really easy to understand. Now, obviously, if you're telling a story, that makes so much sense. If you're writing concept albums, he's your guy. I think when Jeff Wayne was doing that album, he was definitely thinking of this album.
0: I mean, I think the great success is they have... Like, the songs are just simple. Lyrics are simple. Mm. I think the the one real saving grace that makes it quite interesting is that I think each of the band members wrote one or two of each of the songs, including, I believe, the drummer was the one who wrote the introductory poems.
2: Oh, really? (laughs) That's crazy.
1: Yeah, that's quite cool.
0: So yeah, no, I think the thing that really makes it kind of flow but never get boring is the fact that you have kind of five distinct compositional voices throughout the album. Because mm. I was going to say, I think these are just their three-minute pop songs, and then I think to have the richness of the orchestra really add that little oomph.
1: Joe, you know I think that really, really makes them fit together, is the mellotron. Yes, absolutely. So I think the mellotron wrote this album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so like the same year, you've got Sergeant Pepper uses loads of Mellotron on that. You hear lots of orchestral stuff in that album too, and it just fits. Like, there's, um, you know, a couple of these these tracks, you're actually fooled. Well, I'm fooled <laughs> when I hear the Mellotron. I'm like, oh, that's like it, it's it's actually so so good mm. at sounding like some of these instruments, and it's an incredible piece of kit. Yeah. I was just saying, like for anyone who you know listening like the mellotron is is you know it's kind of the first sampler <laughs> you know you basically you you hit the key and it runs a little bit of tape and that tape's got a recording of the instrument but yeah it at least it actually sounds really really good like the the afternoon was was one i felt like I, I was completely fooled by it in places you know that kind of um the the wood the woodwind sound so it sounds great you know, you think of, Leasing the Sky with Diamonds," you like that. There's, there's like a riff. I think it's "The Evening" again. There's, there's, a, there's a piece in the beginning of that where that, where you could literally take that part and just shove it into Leasing the Sky with Diamonds," and no one would have noticed. You know, it, it's like the, the Mellotron, is writing some of these tracks. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd love one.
0: <laughs> I mean, it must have just been, like, so exciting to have this, just because it's such a haunting sound, and it really mm. glues a lot of the, as you say, a lot of these tracks together. Mm. And it must have just been so fun for everyone in 1967 <laughs> to just be like, oh, great, like, we've got this kind of an orchestra in your hand. You know, I think it was, you'd have strings or flute are really your two options for sounds that you can use. They use um, it a lot as um
2: as sort of just a, a chord bed or a pad in quite a few right. of the songs, and I think that's really nice because um, in the transition periods when they're moving over to the orchestral parts, you could there's this merging point right where the real strings come in and the mellotron strings are still going, and uh, it kind
0: of smooths the cra- smooths out the cracks, you know, and it's it's uh, it really works for it. And I think the mellotron tricks you into thinking that they're in front of an orchestra.
1: So are they never recording at the same time?
0: As far as I understand, they never record at the same time. In fact, I don't think they were ever in the same room. They handed over the mixed songs to Peter Knight, the arranger. Wow. Who then, as you say, assembled the London Festival Orchestra, which was basically just a bunch of studio musicians, and they stitched these transitions between the mixed songs. So just a quick parable... Because I learned this and it's the same type of thing for me. The Parable of the Power Rangers. So back in the 90s, there was... I think they were like toy merchants or something. And they were just like, we're just going to buy copyright of this space ninja show called the Power Rangers. I don't know what it was called in Japanese. And they literally just bought footage or licensed footage from the Japanese production company of Power Rangers fighting monsters. They took that footage... And then they filmed a bunch of scenes in American high schools, and they just stitched them together, and that became the show, the American show, The Power Rangers.
1: Well, that explains a lot. I grew up watching that.
0: <laughs> no, and I, was, I grew i grew up watching that, and I, I had never grasped that they were just two different shows running side by side together because it felt so seamless. And I was thinking, I actually can't think of any other time in music where I'll say the chocolate and the peanut butter really came together to make a delicious Reese's, where you really took a, an element completely out of left field, say in this case, just random orchestral transitions, and then... 60s pop songs, and they just stitched them together. And obviously the concept will have been there, because I think you've, you're talking Phil Spector and Brian Wilson with The Wall of Sound circa 1965, 66. So I think that's what they wanted to do, was just this orchestral project. But obviously it becomes a different thing.
2: <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, but the first thing I think of when I think about how they integrated R- R&B or, or rock into orchestra and that sort of amalgamation is how similar it is in a lot of ways to Daft Punk's attempt on the Tron Legacy soundtrack because that again is like this amalgamation of a genre that shouldn't really be with orchestra but is and I can't, like I obviously my understanding of prog rock is, is limited but um, of my knowledge I can't think of many albums where they've sort of had this seamless transition between the two genres of music I suppose you could call it and it's interesting that it's taken so long for for popular music to do it again right so I imagine this was huge back in the back of the day back in the 60s and what it takes another 50 years for someone to decide to do it again and it's for a Disney movie I just it's interesting how with their creativity producing this thing it's interesting how it hasn't been replicated or or replicated to the same degree I, and I, and i wonder i was going to ask you guys directly if if there are other prog rock albums where they use orchestras as heavily as this
0: the answer for me is 100% no mm.
2: i mean i get it in in terms of like song to song but a whole album it just yeah. seems brave i
1: guess <laughs> yeah and i i think that's the thing it's it's not just you know rock music or prog music or whatever with some orchestral bits it's like a classical album. One of the things that pops into my head when I listen to this is that have you ever heard the Peter and the Wolf record? Mm. So it's like it's just the story of Peter and the Wolf in classical music and it's like a similar sort of length and it's you know because you've are you got dark moods and uplifting moods and stuff so it, it kind of has a similar sort of feel to this album but that's a classical album that's not a it's not a rock band. It's like you've got these two things not joined together and working together they're almost fighting against each other, but in no way are they fighting against each other because <laughs> the way it's mixed is beautiful, you know. Um, Peanut butter and jam, yeah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. So what do you think the story is here? Is it just a man or woman's journey throughout the day? Is there more to it than just a man going through his day, or is it simply that?
1: Yeah, and I think it's, it's, not, it's not just the time of the day. It's the time of the day for a normal person. So it's instantly relatable. Yeah, an average Joe's day.
2: (laughs) Like, just in terms of how certain tracks sound, I think they do quite a good job of making the various... so, So, like, the day begins and the afternoon all feel like that time of day in their arrangement. And their key, mm. and then also the motifs that they use in it, and I think that that like to me that was incredibly interesting. Like the how frantic like lunch break felt, for example, and that is something that I hadn't really appreciated in in previous music before. So I think whilst it's somewhat um, reductive in its in its use of like rhyming couplets, etc., I think also there's a there's a lot to be said about how they've crafted each individual song to to mirror that specific time of day and that was quite yeah ingenious i thought at least i mean you know obviously coming from a place of ignorance somewhat but um i feel like as a concept the day is quite a small concept right and when you think of any concept album usually they like to deal with quite abstract ideas right that's at least my impression so I just thought it was interesting that they decided to do the day. There is something quite inherently poetic about them doing the day. I thought that was just an interesting choice, really. It's it's not overreaching. It's not like they've decided to break down the reality of consciousness or go to some weird world. They've just wanted to describe an every, an every man's day, yeah.
0: So in my senior year of high school probably age 16, 17. We have to do what's called a senior year project, and that's exactly what it sounds like, a project that lasts the senior year. So people do large multi-stage projects like renovating a car or whatever. And I, I chose to write and record a concept album Wow! with my friend Nick, who you will have heard from last week on the Beatles podcast. So we sat down with an acoustic guitar at a piano, to write and record a album about the seasons a concept album about the seasons and of course we we put our minds to it and you you know you think oh how do you make the sound of snow crunching or leaves falling musically how do you capture the essence of a season and it is unbelievably hard to do and i think this just goes to show that you need talent and luck and whatever else to pull off a concept album because you can spend so much time coming up with the concept that you actually just forget to write songs. So <laughs> massive respect to the Moody Blues for actually pulling this off.
1: I was going to say, unless you're the sort of person, who, you know, you've got so much stuff in your in your bag already that you can just pick things out that go, that's so perfect for this theme. Yeah. Like in the, in this album, obviously the last song, Lights and White Satin," is that... You know, he's just picked that yeah. out. But it's like everyone's got a night song. Yeah. Everyone's got a day song, but to then have those other shades of the day is is really tricky. It's really, really tricky. Seasons, you know, that's a little bit more obvious, but maybe this is what the difference between prog musicians and other musicians is that they go, concept album, great, yeah. That's what I need to, to show off my chops, whereas normal humans don't think that way.
0: Looking at it from... <laughs> From all of these years later, I think you can't start with a concept. I actually think both Darkseid and Animals, and actually Wish You Were Here, which is about loss and fame, I think they were songs where Roger Waters and or the rest of Pink Floyd would have been in an emotional space and wrote a bunch of songs kind of relating to this, and thus they came up with stuff that was all related to those concepts. I think with this, they just wrote a handful of songs and then sequenced them so that they'd be the times of day and funnily enough i think this was all just like studio pressure quick turnaround and a really amazing arranger and orchestrator makes it come off but i i don't think you could have sat down to write this a to b i think this feels like a a complete one-off in that way it
1: feels like hard work yes definitely hard work. (laughs) just write
0: normal albums people (laughs) god damn it
1: (laughs) you kind of touched on it earlier when he's you know just saying about the the mood that's that's conjured through the classical the orchestral section of the music that night in white satin was written years before but obviously he's talking about being in these satin sheets and stuff in the song so it's like clearly this will work in the night section but it's it's not just you know they've just thrown that in there it works so beautifully the idea of you know Sleep and and transitioning. Well, this, this kind of threw me, and this is silly now. But when the record first starts, the the string bit that's playing, I'm like, I've heard this before. Where is it? Like, it's so familiar of like you know film scores and stuff like that. And I was like, is this Conan the Barbarian? It <laughs> just kept going <laughs> in my head. I was like, what what is that? Why is that? Um, and obviously, when you get to the end of the the track, at the end of the album, and they play. Nights and White Satin, that same theme is in Nights and White Satin, and that's what it was, but um, as I was listening to it, I started googling <laughs> you know, um, what you know, what work has the arranger done, you know, P- Peter Knight and he was involved in the um, Dark Crystal yeah, so he was involved in that, and if you hear that like, you're like, oh, interesting it's got a similar vibe, yeah and it's, obviously, there's lots of vibes but, yeah, it, I was like, I'm getting that same arrangement of instruments um, so yeah that was pretty cool
2: yeah it's it's the kind of sweeping horn lifts and the lonely strings and lonely wood, woodwind it kind of brings this, uh, this retro movie feel almost I when I heard it I thought of like uh, Studio Ghibli actually but uh, <laughs> mm, yeah it's nice. just that, that sort of fantastical but fragile
0: world yeah nice and I was going to say, I think that's probably one of the strengths, or rather, that's one of the things that kind of makes this able to play off the rock music so well, is that it honestly kind of just feels like soundtrack music. Hmm. And I think actually the fact that the, the orchestral music isn't, it's, you know, it's not Fifth Symphony blasting in your face with sweet riffs. <laughs> it's a lot more, they took, uh, you know, a few of the most more beautiful melodies of the song songs, and then just added the nice floaty strings and, as you say, like nice horn lifts. And they kind of say, remember that really beautiful melody, doodly doodly do. let's start this song now.
2: Yeah, because mm. they've got that, so the day begins is like the overture, I suppose, in, in a lot of ways. But um, yep. it's nice how you also hear these callbacks throughout the um, orchestral
1: interludes and in the different songs. Talking about the the cinema element, there's a point in lunch break where the orchestral part almost feels like you know that kind of Odeon. Oh yeah, intermission. It's like it sounds like intermission music. I don't know if you've seen uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. The it's uh, Marlon Brando's version of Mutiny on the Bounty. That's got this intermission bit in it. It's like half an hour long. It's got that kind of vibe about it. In, you know, to me anyway. I thought that was pretty cool.
0: But like the kind of cinematic scope
1: to, to my ears anyway because i'd already decided in my head this is like cinematic and i was you know listening with my eyes closed <laughs> just going on a, a visual journey um so it was doing that to me i don't know if anyone else would would uh, upon hearing that but yeah that was that was my experience anyway i think
2: some some of the best songs on this album are those where they have those orchestral build-ups
0: etc Oh, to drive you into them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the the
2: momentum shift is much easier on the ears. Um, and I think also, like, sonically, <laughs> it's a lot nicer to listen to. So uh, the one gripe listening to both the remastered version and the original mix is on the songs where there isn't a large orchestral component, they really amp up the bass guitar, so much so that it doesn't quite fit in my in my personal opinion. For example, like in the morning, another morning where they have this sort of umplumpery, energetic piccolo flute esque uh, jolly music. They then have this huge bass guitar in your face oh, yeah. playing through Absolutely. playing throughout the track, and I just find it so boomy. You know, if you compare that to a another track where they have this this orchestral music that's supplying the low end in a much more palatable way, it's it's a much more enjoyable listening experience.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a real mixing shift, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't know how much of that is, you know, the original mix. I haven't actually heard. I've heard like a, a remastered version, but I believe that, that mix died basically. Um, and they had to
0: sort of stitch pair it. Yeah. yeah. So
1: you do lose some backing vocals in some of the songs and like, you know, some of the parts, you know, uh, some of the, some of the orchestral parts might actually come in at different points. Um, but I don't know how, I don't know how different it is to be honest.
0: So the great horrible irony of all this, as I, as I said at the beginning, they specifically commissioned this album to be demonstrating the studio's stereo recording technology. They've gone through this saga, they've made this album, and then they mix it down to mono. Because oh, really? no one owns a stereo.
1: <laughs> right, okay.
0: Well,
2: mixing it on mono is a, it's a, good, it's a good way to mix, to be fair.
0: This isn't actually an album where you really need to explore the space that much. It just, it's a pipeline of just smooth easy music with really nice simple melodies up at the front and smooth harmonies at the back and it's actually an album that doesn't need to be explored in stereo as much mm. yeah they have some
2: gimmicky stuff so in the afternoon they have um i don't i don't know if it adds to it or detracts really but uh the lead vocal is you know when you listen to it it'll be on your left and then uh, at the chorus it will pan from left to mid uh, yes. I just see. I didn't like that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> yeah. If you think about stereo when it first came out, people were experimenting with placement of different instruments. Now, obviously, it's you know 2022. We've we've had you know decades of you know like a solid idea of where each instrument would sit in the stereo spectrum. So we always know that like you know lead vocals always bang on in the middle. <laughs> mm. so to us it's jarring but maybe in the 60s that would have been like well, you know if i stand over here
0: that makes sense
2: yeah that's a really good point
0: yeah as we were talking about with sergeant peppers and and i guess revolver i think the the original mix they put all of the drums in one ear and all of the bass in another ear and all of the piano here there and everywhere mm. and i think actually interestingly i think it's it's what gives 60s psychedelia it's really unique and kind of haunting sound because if you think about it the Motown recording where they really tried to record a live studio even now it feels really I don't want to say modern it sounds like Motown but it sounds modern-ish because it sounds like you're in a studio and there's a bunch of music happening in front of you
1: Hmm. the instruments are in the right spot
0: yep and I think one of the things that gave 60 psychedelia its really specific flavor is that they had instruments everywhere, not necessarily where you as a natural human being would hear them. It sounds like you're listening to half of the Beatles through one hotel wall, half through the other wall, and then John's in the room with you. And I think it actually gives it a really kind of like jarring sound that is now kind of passe or weird or Mm -hmm. whatever. We wouldn't do that now. But actually it gives it a really unique 60s flavor. Mm. Mm. So we start with The Day Begins, and we start with the poems. How do we feel about the poems? You guys have talked a lot about, like, it's really nice to have this nice orchestral swell. It brings you in. I I think it really feels like, woo, we are starting an adventure.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, also... What an, ob- what an obscure thing to start an album with, <laughs> especially in this, you know, in, in the '60s or whatnot. Like, I can't, I can't really imagine anyone buying this tape or vinyl or however they're listening to it, <laughs> sitting down, putting it on in their living room, and then suddenly they've got some guy reciting a poem in their ear.
0: And yet, I think this is the interesting thing. The the thing I find most fascinating about this album, and it runs all the way through. I actually feel like the earnestness is really pleasant and it's it's actually not very grating or very i'll say cringy even though it it is saccharine it doesn't disgust me with its saccharine so (laughs) the orchestral intro it's like it's the most intro intro of all intros ever absolutely we go into a poem about the morning beginning or the day beginning and it's a pretty standard poem like really basic words and yet i'm there like, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And the, the something about the earnestness just grabs you right out the gate and continues all the way through. Mm.
2: It is a fantastic bookend of sorts. Yep. Um, and especially how they uh, sort of relate to each other at the beginning and also at the end. And there, you know, we'll talk about it at the end of the track list, obviously, but it does call cool back to some of the the words in the poem of The Day Begins. And I find that quite nice and cyclical, which is probably the point. You know, with it being a day night cycle.
1: And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's it was came last. I think that
0: Oh they attached this at the end. Oh, As yeah, really. Conceptually,
1: yeah. because yeah, I think Knights and White Saturn had the poem already. And obviously you hear like the Knights and White Saturn theme played on the Mellotron in this track. I think they went like, Well of course, yeah, The the when the night ends the day begins, so we'll have that cycle.
0: And and I think that might be speaking to the fact that they probably just wrote, in fact, I know, they just wrote these songs. They just wrote some songs. <laughs> and then put them in chronological order in that way, where they said this is a pretty day-ish song and this is a pretty night-ish song, and they just put them in the order. So yeah, I can imagine that at the end they kind of stitched them together in a conceptual way.
1: Yeah. I, I often think, like, this whole delivery of these poems, I think, like it's Pinder, isn't it? That there's the, the the reciting of the poem in this one. I think so. I might, I might be wrong. But um, you know, if you're in a band, you, you know, you play your instrument, you do sing, and you spend all your time practicing that. But how often do you practice reciting poetry to music? You know, so it's so yeah, it's, it's, it's quite it's quite a daunting, weird thing, and it could be delivered really poorly. But I, I relate this to the War of the Worlds. This guy's you no know, Richard Burton, but he does actually orate quite nicely, I think.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I was I was like actually thinking, like, wait, I really wish he had done audiobooks or something. Like, he, he just has, he's got a great, whatever mm. that is, it's baritone, bass. I don't know where he is in the range, but, man, it's smooth. Nice, yeah. Yeah, I think fair to say, like, the poem sets you up to feel like we are on a conceptual journey now. And it signposts it real, obviously. And then we start with Dawn is a feeling. And I think this, as the first song, I think really highlights the fact that the lyrics are just perfectly smooth. Like, right out the gate we're getting just real simple lyrics, kind of about times of day. And obviously they'll they'll bring up what one might be doing during different times of day. But I feel like, again, we start right out the gate with, Dawn as a feeling, a beautiful ceiling, or whatever he says. Nice rhyming couplets, about times of day. Nothing to really, nothing to shock or aggravate you. We're just going to talk about the the moments.
2: It's interesting because, like, oh, how uh, sort of simple the rhyming structure is. But when you look at it in terms of music theory, it does some really, really interesting things. Like, it's 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 quite chromatic in a lot of ways with the with its runs down from like descending chord structures, basically. It makes it quite an interesting song to listen to sonically, I
0: suppose. I mean, I also wonder if that's kind of the... I don't know if it's the Beatles or the environment in which the Beatles are obviously the kingpins. But I feel like that floating from different kind of chord centers and stuff like that. Really, you know, the the lack of just four chords that are all in the same key. Yes. You know, that's a Beatles move. Mm -hmm
2: he's singing for quite a lot of it in c dorian so the c d and then e flat that bit (laughs) um when over the top they've got c minor and g and then c minor again you know a thousand years if you want it to with the stabs for example that's super cool because then you know really the chord bed is in a different key to what the Lead singer singing, but it works because even though he's probably in C Dorian and the chord bed's probably in F minor, they're still pulling the right notes and being able to harmonise. Like this is probably why it's my like favourite song of the album is that it does all of these really interesting hmm. things interesting. with very little. Basically, you know, there's not many chords that they use, um, and if they do, they usually. Put in with the parallel minor or something like that. So it's just quite, quite fun in that aspect, I guess.
0: And, and it feels like a simpler song than it is, I guess. I guess it's the theme through the album.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You've
0: always got that one, five,
2: flat seven or seven chord structure that's so Pleasing. often used yeah. in rhythm and blues and that sounds really nice to your ears.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think um, something that comes across a lot when you're listening to this record is like, there's all these crazy mood shifts that happen in their songs, as well as the orchestral songs. But it doesn't feel like there's big key changes. It's, It's doing what you say. It's like, it's playing modally. So you're getting the feel of these different modes. And then the singer you know we'll 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 stick to the initial to the yeah Yeah, we'll stick to that and and that's what gives it its uh, emotion and that's what's gonna give you these powerful mood changes if you're just changing key well nothing nothing changes but if you stick to your key and you change modes then you feel the changes Yeah. yeah and that's happening all over this record and i wonder you know are these guys aware of this this level of, of you know do they do they think along these lines when they're writing this music? Are they aware of their of the the theory behind it all, or do they are they just playing what they what they know and what sounds nice? I, I have no idea. I often wonder about musicians from the sixties, you know, because you know what what training did they have? Like a lot of these guys, I know, you know, Justin Hayward was. Like he wrote that um nightsmite Saturn when he was nineteen years old. you know, how long was he playing before that? He's from the the skiffle background, you know like he was he must have been playing as as a, as a kid i don't I don't really know how young he was when he started playing, but he was always playing with musicians. How much time has he had to actually be taught and learn the theory? I don't know
0: you know, I think like that with these kind of chord progressions, I think you kind of also probably get tropes that just come back so we come in on a, a bed of flutes to another morning
2: <laughs> i mean if, if if your morning starts like this you're gonna have a good day Do you know? What I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because it's it's so happy and energetic and i think it's the antithesis of any morning i have <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> this is a morning person's morning this is a morning person's morning yeah <laughs> no, and I, I think, again, the, this one for me probably feels the most 60s-ish. Yes. Like 60s pop, like the pop-pop that was going on at the time, where it's kind of jaunty, you know, you're, you're just you're starting the day, skipping down the street.
2: I just imagined a village fate, you know? That, <laughs> yeah. that was yep. that was what came up in my head, is some people with flower wreaths on their head running down to the village fate to knock coconuts off a stool.
0: <laughs> just, yep, start the day right. This... For
1: me, this track it, it kind of explains the difference between R&B musicians and prog musicians. So so R B musicians have normal lives, they go out and they play music with their friends. They've probably started young, duh, duh, duh. They've seen the world a little bit. Prog musicians tend to come from like public schools and they've not they've never interacted with girls and <laughs> they've not had you know they've they've been in same sex schools and they've not like they may not have had relationships yet you know so they so they so they sing about you know dragons and and yeah. um, quite, but like the, the 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 stuff that's sung about is very naive often um whereas you know blues musicians sing about relationships or something related normal to normal life social stuff Yep. Whereas this song is, it's got prog vibes. Yep. Whereas, you know, Knights in white satin is is an R and B song. You know, this yes. is this is a prog song.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep.
1: This reminds me of, um, you know, like the very
0: early Pink Floyd. Yeah, see Emily play. Yeah. Yep.
1: Oh. Read my mind there.
0: Again, like I think it's just the pastoral British. 60s vibe and we'll get to that in in one second we're going to talk about what what was going on in san francisco concurrently because this feels british as all get out to me and but next we come to peak hour and i think again this really just captures a vibe of like we're all we're all cruising to work like it's a little bit little bit hectic we're all commuting for some reason again i think they just captured a vibe of the time of day
2: yeah it seemed very surfer rock-esque to me in a lot of ways the tube guitar etc
1: yeah. I felt like it was The Who doing surf rock. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Like, um, Can't Explain or oh, The Quick One While She's Away or something like that, because there's so many shifts and yep. stuff going Loads. into it. And mm. then... Oh.
0: Yeah. No, and I, actually, that's another one where I can't believe how many song shifts they put into just this one song. And again, I guess this pre-Sages prog rock in a big way, where you can just stuff bits of song together to make full songs. Mm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this was a great one where there's just there's there's actually quite a lot going on for such a simple song.
1: Rufus, I think you were going to say something about.
2: Oh, sorry. Yeah. Surf rock. Yeah. Well. Um, so something that's quite classic with surf rock, like the song like Pipeline, for example. You get drum rolls. Drum rolls are integral to surfer rock, I would argue, and there's just so many in this song. Yeah, <laughs> and it brings it quite a lot of weight you know, it brings quite a lot of momentum to it, you know, that energy of I suppose what they were trying to do was you know, there's this energetic morning or whatever energetic lunch break, sorry so that's put in all this sort of crazy surfer rock and then finally an organ appears, I think to give them credit there was thought into both the instrumentation and then how they arranged everything to, to bring this sort of surfer rock-esque uh, frantic energy, basically, was what I was going to say.
0: I mean, the arrangements are, are phenomenal. Yeah. Um, like I will say, and maybe this again is because they were doing specifically this grand experiment for the stereo thing. Maybe they really had thought about where everything would sit in the mix. But I feel like they just do a good job, even in their songs, making it sound lush and orchestral. Mm and again they don't they don't flash any instrumentation at all. You know, they've got the drums rolling in the background or they'll have an organ drop in or a flute solo here or there. But I never feel like there's like a a riff clashing with another riff clashing with some like rhythm parts. It's very simply arranged.
1: I think it's the playing in the, in the that drum track because there's not been a lot of drums up to this point and it's it's just a great drum track. Yeah. They haven't done anything that really jumps out as an interesting technical feat regards to the mixing without drums. It's just a great performance. Yep. There is one little tidbit about Justin Hayward. Obviously, his background is very typical to to those guys from the 60s who went over in the British invasion era, in that he was into skiffle, which is like kind of the British kind of folk version of the blues. He was a big Lonnie Donegan fan and. Lonnie Donegan's the guy who kind of started that whole skiffle thing. Justin Hayward's twelve-string Guild acoustic guitar—it was actually gifted to him by Lonnie Donegan.
0: Oh, interesting. Oh, so he's a, a direct inheritor of the the skiffle axe.
1: And and but he, but it's like, you know, his his guitar playing is again much like his voice is this um, incredibly clean thing. You know, when you think of guys of this era, they're always playing all these crunchy guitars, and this. He's, he plays this beautiful, clean-sounding electric guitar, and he used the same guitar for like, since he was like 15, I think so the, the Gibson 335. But on this album, he's using a
0: Telecaster. I'm not sure where. <laughs> I think the interesting thing about this is I couldn't tell you a single darn thing about the guitar mm. in this album.
1: Yeah. You know, obviously there's the the kind of the Who doing surf rock, and there's you know there's chord riffs in there, but that's that's probably the only time we're hearing that Telecaster. But other than that, there's yeah, it's not a lot really, is there? But that was it.
0: And I think we we then come on to Tuesday afternoon, which is probably the second biggest hit of this album, and I really like the the mellotron and whatnot in it. But I actually don't have much to say about it because it's just a very very smooth and easy song.
1: Yeah, I think th- this one, like the, I don't have a lot myself. I like the, there's an acoustic guitar riff at the beginning. I really enjoyed because there's not really been a lot of guitar, <laughs> um, <laughs> and and again the the mellotron. As soon as I hear hear that, I'm there. That's what made me think about talking about the mellotron and like how good it is as an instrument. It, it like it really does sound very good on the beginning of that, and and it's again it's why the orchestral part is tied in so well with, with their band recordings. It's it's because of the, the great yeah, sound they can actually get out of that machine.
0: Can phase in and out from real strings to Melotron's strings. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm becoming more and more a fan of the, the Mellotron as I'm hearing it on these <laughs> on these records, you know, um I really want one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah yeah. I guess
2: it's kind of interesting that sometimes this track is split into two, right? So you've got, like, the afternoon and then evening, time to get away.
0: So the, the funny bit there is, of course, that we have evening, which is part two of the afternoon. Right. Before the song, evening.
2: evening, And that's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, confusing. I, I, and I think,
0: again, this is probably just because they wrote a bunch of songs. One of the songs was evening, time to get away. And they're like, ah, crud, we need to put something in the afternoon section. Again, just the flow from song to song to song, perfect. Because I feel right after Tuesday afternoon, we start with the evening time to get away. I'm loving it. Again, it's a really simple kind of poppy song.
1: This this is the one where I felt like the the mellotron section you could literally pull it out and stick it in, at least in the sky of diamonds. Cause it's so similar. Yep. And I d- I don't think that's one person ripping off the other person. I think that's just. Again, the instrument,
0: like the thing, the instrument is asking you to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's that. It's yep. it's like there's something about the way, because I don't, I think it's one of those it doesn't handle multiple notes very well, so you tend to bounce the keys one to the other, yeah. and I think and that's you know, you hear that in both those those pieces of music. I think that's yeah. what's going on. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a practical thing that works for the for the keyboard and the way it functions. But um, yeah, it's um, the shift from evening to night. Like the the this this track's gotten the most. Well, it sounded to me like it had the most orchestral mood shifts. Going yep. back to that thing with the playing the modes, you know, really jumping into the different modes, like the way they they give you a feeling. You know, like it genuinely that sounds sorrowful, that sounds uplifting. This one gives you tension. You know, there's loads of that in this and it, and i think it's it's interesting because you know as you at the end of your day that's what's going on isn't it you know you're you're relaxing but you're also dreading what's coming tomorrow have i made my lunch for for work in the morning you know <laughs> what's my boss gonna say like there's lots of for for me it's like you know that that bit where you're supposed to be relaxing at the end of the day depending on the day that's you know there's there's so much going on in your mind you know as, as you're as you're digesting what's happened and like it yeah, that's what it feels like. And then, yeah, going back to the, the surf rock thing, that is where it is kind of ser- inserted in. That doesn't feel like an evening song to me. The orchestral bit definitely does, but then you've got this classic sort of American-British invasion kind of beat. Like organ-heavy,
0: beady. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's a great track. <laughs> and you're hearing the band playing to- together. It's cool.
0: No, I think I think also the rich Beach Boy-like harmonies that they whip out sometimes. And obviously, Pet Sounds would have been out, been a hit. And if you're making an orchestral rock album, of course, you're going to call back to them.
1: I believe this is one of the um, one of the times in the record where it depends on what mix you're listening to, mm. whether or not you have those oh rich backgrounds vocals. Yeah. So yeah. I think if you've got the original 1967 version, there's less. It, yeah. Yeah, it, like it comes in and out, yeah. and then there's a, a '70s version that's it's just not there at all, yeah. or it's full blast all the way through. Um, yeah. But the remit, you know, the, the remastered version, I think, is supposed to be as it was in the '60s. But I don't know if they actually managed to save all of it. I don't know.
0: So we then come on to actual evening, and this is a song in two parts. There's the Indianish jam called Sunset. And then Twilight Time. And I find this interesting because I had never really thought about how stupid they are as songs. Because they are probably my favorite songs on the album. They're the weirder ones. And I feel like that, that, that turns over the topsoil a little bit and makes me happy. Like, we've had some pretty 60-ish generic jams. And then we've got two just out-of-the-box, wackier songs getting ready for Nights in White Satin. So how do we feel about Evening?
1: Maybe it describes something strange he's had for dinner.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, like you've had too much cheese, and then you. have Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the 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 concept they've set up, where it's a normal person having a normal day, I feel like you've come you've come down from your t- evening time to get away then it's time to go to bed with some Nights in White Satin. I feel like in a ooky spooky space rock way, these kind of two jams actually work quite well. This is the Lost in the Woods, Staring at the Moon, ooky spooky nighttime. And I love them both as songs, and they fit for me spiritually. But when I stood back a second, I was like, actually, these are kind of weird for a concept. So the first part is just an Indianish jam. I think this was just in vogue, this is what everyone's doing. I'm trying to think, I don't think they actually have a sitar on it, but it's got drums that sound tabla esque and it's got an orchestral arrangement that's sort of Indian Duh. with the sliding. Indian.
1: I think this goes into that, that thing about how much actual theory these guys knew because it's down as Justin Hayward playing the sitar. Yep. So I think he's got one of those you know, it's it's an electric guitar sitar you know, like the Roland Stokes use. So I think that's what it is. But yeah, like how much theory does he have on that? Or is he just playing what sounds cool to him Mm. when he's picked it up? And bearing in mind, it is a guitar, really. You know, it's where the frats are and stuff. It's It's not a traditional music. But it was, like you say, it was in Vogue at the time, so everyone was probably wanting to to get in on it.
0: (laughs) To get the sound, at least. So he's not playing like a full Ravi Shankar Raga, where there's like lots of intricate runs and stuff. He's obviously just adding a little bit of flavor to this slightly Indian jam. But then we come on to Twilight Time, and I think for me, the thing that this song has is just those backing vocals, and I love them.
2: Oh, it's a beautiful bed, isn't it? Yeah. And,
0: and And I think, obviously, because they're the backing vocals... I hadn't thought about them ever in any of the times I've ever listened to this album, and then I think just this last, probably last few weeks, I've really been like, oh my god, they, they come in, and they come in just right, and they have a melody to them. They're not just, you know, singing the harmony to the lyrics. They are a separate melody, and man, they really lift this song. But I will say, I think these are kind of the two faces of British psychedelia, and we get to what was going on over in sunny San Francisco, where I actually don't think American psychedelia is that psychedelic. I think uh, it's obviously a lot more based in the blues and or folk, and they kind of just did that and maybe added some interesting sound effects. But actually, I was going to say, I God bless British psychedelia, I think they added this kind of Indian influence. They have a lot of the pastoral imagery and then they obviously add the orchestra in with a bunch of interesting studio effects. And I actually think you get a really distinctive British psychedelic sound as opposed to, though we call them psychedelia, I think like the Doors kind of just sound like a really, really good blues band.
1: Uh, Yeah, to to me, you know, when I think of psychedelia, I actually do think of America because because it's so tied in with the hippie thing and, and the, the hippie thing in, in Britain wasn't real. You know, it was it was like a fashion thing. It, I think it's kind of when it hit. So I think a lot of the big bands were British and by the end of the 60s, they probably had the musical chops to kind of do something that would, you know, play with Switch the year. and Yeah, yep. yeah, so it was that. But then again, you know, those hippie chemists, like there were some incredible hippie carnists in in, the, in in britain at that time so maybe you know maybe it's something to do with mind expanding drugs and whatnot i don't know but it's uh, it's interesting
0: i think for me when i think of american psychedelia i think of kind of the grateful dead scene crosby stills nash and young maybe janice joplin or whatever i think of woodstock and when i think about that i was like actually the music God bless the music, it's it's very pleasant to hear, but it's just blues mm. or folk done loudly and with electric guitars as opposed to, you know, obviously Jimi Hendrix is American, but actually his is some of the m- most British psychedelia there is.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I think he informs the British scene. Yep. Yeah. Whereas the apex of the American scene for me is Jefferson Airplane, you know, when you've got, like, White Rabbit, where... You've got this song that's that's actually comes from jazz. Like that's yeah. you know, it's Miles Davis's Bolero is what informs that piece of music, but it's the song itself is the lyrics is all about again drug culture, but it probably has other deeper meanings. But yeah. You could do a whole show on that.
0: And I was gonna say I think again it's uh let's not get sidetracked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, like
1: like yeah, I think this this is the thing like if you start talking about psychedelia like you could probably do a whole show on understanding what these genres mean you know we, we say oh this is prog this is you know you could you could argue that this this album isn't prog this is orchestral rock but it's just, it's just terms yeah you know the reality is prog fans love this yeah so it's a prog album
0: well and i i was going to say the only reason i really bring that up is i think that when they split off I think American 70s music goes off towards classic rock, like the Leonard Skinner type of southerny bluesy rock. Whereas I think British psychedelia leads us directly into 1970s prog. As in, I think the, the, the vibrant experimentation, lots of technical foolishness, kind of an arrangement daring, chord progression daring. I actually think it's a pretty good line from here to 70s prog rock.
1: I think that's really interesting, because yeah, that distinction between the ponds the pond <laughs> <laughs> either side of the pond you know what what what's the common denominator there is is equipment and studios, obviously yes personnel but but those things you know the equipment didn't travel well, yep. so British musicians used different amps when they played guitar, now that changes things and you know the studios were set up for doing different things in America. You know the, the the best the best studios were recording things like Motown or country music, so they have a different instrumentation. In the UK, you know you think of Abbey Roads, like they built all this yep. equipment that was only there. So they were building these desks and these effects that literally weren't available anywhere else. Yeah, and that relationship between the Beatles and Abbey Road is is one, you know, everyone knows. <laughs> but, you know, they're they're inventing effects that the, those guys got to play with for the first time. Yeah. And I think that really changes the.
0: I was going to say, I think this is probably true all the way up maybe to like the 70s or 80s, whereas I feel like there's the Philadelphia funk sound or the New York or the LA sound where you really have musicians that are in a place they're trading presumably studio techniques and and session musicians and and arrangers and that type of thing where you really have a sound that's from a sp- a place and a space so now we come to the final final song knights in white satin which is easily th- the hit of this album probably the hit of the moody blues it's obviously a banger and i think it really puts that final exclamation point on the point i've been making about like it's just an earnest ballad and I don't know why, because I'm not a ballad enthusiast. I actually think most ballads don't age well at all. But this is a ballad that just works. And I was going to say, it could have sounded really saccharine, because he really is yelping at the end about, I love you. Oh, yeah, I love you. <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, my, that's that's a lot there, Justin. But, no, it it absolutely, like, it works. It's, this
1: it's is genuine. Th- yeah. yeah. Genuine. You know, the... the a ballad sounding like a ballad because you wrote a ballad sounds like a ballad that you wrote because it's a ballad. This isn't. This is some guy's real story. The Rufus explaining the story. No, sorry. I was just... <laughs> <laughs> no, because you were about oh, to talk about it at the beginning. But um, of,
2: all the, of all the songs, I think this is... This is, you know, talking about um, simplicity of lyrics, I feel like this has the most simple lyrics despite being a ballad and despite like technically having um some emotional drive behind it. You know, previously the other songs have been just kind of the times of day and now we're coming to the night and sort of the situation where he's wanting to be with his faraway girlfriend or whatever. I I think uh the lyrics actually kind of poorly describe his feelings, or at least, I just he's just saying the same things over and over again, just as you said, Ian. Just him saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: and yet, I think that that complete blankness makes it the universal banger. Like, some tried to tell me thoughts I cannot explain, there's letters I haven't sent, that type of thing. And I was like, I mean, I don't personally have this story. <laughs> But I, I can I like I think this is just one of those like it's an absolutely universal song in that really good way of um, it just sounds like he's just saying things kind of almost like autocomplete sentences of What it's like to be a, a forlorn lover thinking of your, your love in the deep of the night, mm.
2: and again, it's that, that fragility of the flute, which I and I think like the flute is the MVP in this song personally. I think it's a really beautiful, has some really beautiful runs, but the fragility of the flute by itself kind of reinforces that as well. This, this, this overall
1: feeling,
0: yeah, it's beautiful, and I think the, the mellotron melody that plays off the vocals i dare say is one of my favorite of all time riff plus vocal combinations like i don't know how they they nailed it as much as they did but they just did
1: so when justin wrote this song i believe he was living in a little flat and he was thinking about some girl and it wasn't the girl who gave him the satin sheets and i think that was kind of what set him off thinking about this girl so like he he really is having an emotional time writing this song and yeah it's a simple song but it's the way he delivers it and i don't think we've really talked about this much but justin hayward's voice is powerful and clean so when he delivers lines it's like it's like a razor and it does convey so much emotion in his voice regardless what the words are um but it's at the same time it's the classic unrequented love song you know it straight from the the r&b Song Tradition you Yeah, know. yeah. yeah. And, and that's again Going back to like What makes them The difference between A prog musician And a R&B musician Prog musicians Don't write songs like this Oh this no is, <laughs> yes. it's
0: la- Very much lacking In emotion yep. <laughs>
1: This is This is This is pure soul And it Yeah And it's It's the song of a young man Who's longing This isn't an adult writing Well This is an adult Obviously But
0: it's A young Young adult yeah it's it's yeah. not an adult it's it's
1: yeah it's not a, a mature theme yeah it's this, this, this yes. is this is a young lover um feeling kind of pining pining mm-hmm. yeah. there was one other thing about the the melotron, so when Justin Hayward brought this track to the other musicians in rehearsal, apparently they were like pretty unplussed by it um he, he, you know, he, I think he may have been ready to, to can it, basically. But, you know, the keyboard player goes, I'll play that line again, like the second line of the verse. And he just starts playing this keyboard lick. And that's what made everyone go, oh, you know, what is that? You know, so the song evolved to, with those two guys writing that song together, really. And it's interesting that, you know, that's that's the bit that everyone
0: goes, you know, what a great part.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that's what you're hearing in the first track. So when the song finishes, obviously you could start the record again and yeah. the day over, begins right again. Yeah. <laughs> Which it, probably completely accidental, but you know, if you really want to analyze it, like what a really nice way for the, for the album to have turned out.
0: I mean, they must have blasted out the, the rock part of this because it's only probably 30 minutes of rock song. So they must have blasted it out in terms of recording, because they're all simple songs. So I bet they were probably recorded them in probably like a week. So I bet they would just like just put Mellotron on everything.
1: <laughs> Which I think might be my new approach to, to making music.
0: <laughs> Rufus, do you have any final thoughts about Knights uh, in White Satin?
2: Uh, I think nothing like a gong to tell you the album's over.
0: Amen. I, know, I would say, like and again, just like the beginning... It's the most endingy end of all time. Absolutely. And they end on a delightful, delightful poem about going to bed. Then we have a nice gong to say, <laughs> good night. <laughs> <laughs> so I think where this sits for me in the history of prog rock, ironically, because I don't think they set up to be ambitious. As we've been talking about, they wrote a handful of really nice 60s pop songs and then stitched them together. I think it gave music the impetus to get ambitious and I think that trend's going to continue throughout the 60s all the way up to 69 when we will eventually talk about King Crimson where they took the Mellotron they took the orchestralness, even though they didn't use an orchestra and they would really kick off the transition from British psychedelia to prog rock
2: I mean, you can just see the birth of quite a few different types of music from this this album to be honest i think it's really interesting in how it mixes orchestra with rock and uh and a lot of the techniques that they use here are still used all the time in modern day music and i think that's really quite interesting
0: this absolutely informs kind of the neo-psychedelia movement just that callback to the 60s it just has that wall of sound orchestral thing. And even if they're not using live orchestra, I think the feeling like you want lots of harmonic instruments and then lots of instruments weaving in and out of each other. So, Ed, where did the Moody Blues go from here?
1: Hmm, don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, there you have it. That was the Moody Blues, Days of Future Past. I have been your host, Ian Prize, and this has been a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. Do find us over at Instagram at progfrogpod, and if you have any longer thoughts, queries, opinions, whatever, helloprogfrog at gmail.com. I want to thank my guests, Rufus and Ed. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. So, there we leave the moody Blues with Days of Future Past. But this was just the beginning of their late 60s, early 70s career. They would continue to perfect their version of late 60s pop until 1972's 7th Sojourn, at which point they went on hiatus until 1978's soft rock album Octave, at which point they recruited the Yes! keyboardist Patrick Moraz and went on for a very 80s, 80s. So, that was the Moody Blues. But, next week, in some architecture school in London, a quirky psychedelic band would play a song about a homeless mouse. And, yada yada yada, go on to make Dark Side of the Moon. Join us next week for Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn.